Um, All right, so we are in a series going through the book of Acts together. Pastor Tom last week was in Acts chapter 12 and was talking about Peter um, breaking out of prison, miraculously freed from prison. And today we're going to be in Acts chapter 13. And uh, we're going to be switching over from from Peter and what's going on with him. And now we we get into Barnabas and Saul. And these two guys are kind of a dynamic duo. You may remember a couple weeks ago, they're in Antioch. And they're building the church there. And they're teaching people. And crowds are growing. And the church is growing in this place called Antioch. So uh, we're going to get into Acts chapter 13. We're just going to read the first five verses, one through five. And if you wouldn't mind standing with us as we honor the reading of God's word, that'd be awesome. Um, Acts chapter 13 starts out, it says this, Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. And then he starts naming them. Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And the two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. And John was with them as their helper. Lord Jesus, I, I thank you that uh, even in these just first five verses that seemingly are instructional and informational, that, uh, that you just show us how a New Testament church led by the Holy Spirit operates. I pray that you would bring it to life. Um, I pray that the words um, would spring off the page to us and that they wouldn't just be um, words in a book, but they would be very life and instruction to our lives. And so, Lord, we thank you that you're in it. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, we're going to drill down just in these five verses and, um, and see how a church guided by the Holy Spirit functions. And uh, you may remember a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about this city of Antioch. This is where Barnabas came and there was a big revival happening. A bunch of non-Jews, Gentiles were getting saved and the church was growing and Jerusalem gets a little, "Mm, what's going on, wiggy about it. So they send Barnabas and he gets Saul and then they start preaching and and the church is building up. I want you to understand that Antioch in this day and age was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. There was Rome, there was Alexandria, and then there was Antioch. So this is a big city, a big city of, of much influence. And the church in Antioch ended up becoming um, a stronghold for Christianity for like 400 years. Uh, it was a, so this is a significant church with, with much influence. And we learned back in Acts chapter 11 that it was actually in Antioch that Christians were first called Christians. We didn't, we didn't just kind of wake up and think like, what should we call ourselves? I don't know, Christian? That sounds good. jesus and No, that's too weird. Like, let's just call ourselves Christians. No, that's not how it happened. We didn't wake up one morning and be like, I have a, I'm a C, I am a C-H, I am a C-H-R-I-S-D-I-A-N. They, we literally were named Christians by non-believers in Antioch all these years ago. And it was probably mocking in a mocking way. They kind of came up with this nickname. Like, yeah, this person is a, is a Christian. And either way, it's stuck. And even to this day, we call ourselves Christians. It all began here in Antioch with a bunch of non-believers nicknaming us. 
And the church in Antioch is filled with all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds, all different races and, uh, and pasts. I mean, this is a hodgepodge of people that are, um, that are in this church and, and finding faith in Christ. And it's, it's kind of a bit messy because when revival happens, it's a bit messy. Um, I just wanted you to take a look and we're going to go over this in verse one. We're going to look at the staff and leadership page of the website of First Church in Antioch. So if they had a website and you were to go like, I'm going to go like at the leadership team and check this out. These are the people that make up the leadership team of the First Church in Antioch. The first one, first guy, there's five of them. You can read them there in verse one. The first one is this, Barnabas. We talked about him a couple weeks ago. I actually preached like a whole message about this guy. He is an amazing man of God named Barnabas. Um, he is a Jewish Levite from Jerusalem. Uh, he, uh, his name is actually not Barnabas. His real name that his mama gave him is Joseph. And uh, he's nicknamed Barnabas by the apostles because uh, that word, that name means son of encouragement. And the way this guy lives his life is, is just, it's obvious why they named him son of encouragement. This guy um, is generous. He takes risks on Saul when nobody else trusted him. And I would even go so far as to say that without Barnabas, we may not even know the great apostle Paul that wrote half of our New Testament. It's because of this guy taking a risk on a guy that nobody else trusted and nobody else believed in, but he saw the gold in him and was willing to spend the time to, to disciple him that we have this great apostle Paul that we know today, Barnabas. The second guy, Simeon, called Niger. Um, the word Niger means black one or uh, dark-complexioned. So we can conclude from his nickname that essentially he was a black man, right? This is probably before political correctness came about. So it's like Simeon, the black, the black person. Let me just point out something. Within the first two people mentioned out of the five in the leadership of this first church in Antioch, we, are, we already have a Jewish Levite and a black man on the pastoral staff. Can I just pause there for a second? The church may have a past of a checkered racism, right? But I just want you to see that's not how it began. Everything can start out beautiful and then get twisted and perverted along the way. It's amazing to me, it's a beautiful thing to me that as we look at this first church, it's like it, as it's being birthed, the, the, we have the, the first two people that are mentioned, a Jew, a Jewish Levite and a black man are on the pastoral staff working together as brothers in Christ. Amen? Amen. All right. Um, he, because here's the thing, I don't think that this is ever was supposed to be, well, this is a black church and this is a white church and, and these, these, this is a church based upon what they, the, the language they speak and this is a church based upon the language they speak. I think it was supposed to be the church. This is what I love about Antioch. It's a bunch of, it's a motley crew of people that just decided, wow, we all love Jesus and although we didn't really have much in common and we, we actually had, were brought up with hatred for another people group in our lives, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the beauty of what God does in, in, in and through his body. All right, so Simon called Niger. The, the third, third guy is Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is in North Africa. So all we really know about Lucius is that he's African. That's, that's really all we know. There's some clues in Acts chapter 11, verse 20. It says that some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks 
and telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And so I'd like to think that maybe Lucius was one of the original men to evangelize the Greeks in Antioch. This guy who is essentially right now, to us, years later, a name on a list may have been a catalyst to launching the church in Antioch. A guy who were like, yeah, well, nobody really knows who Lucius of Cyrene could have been the first guy to evangelize a Greek person and to birth the revival that we now see and that we actually live in. So, um, the fourth guy, Menaean, Menaean. And then in parentheses it says, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. So, who's Herod the Tetrarch? There's a lot of Herods. If you've ever done any like Bible history or just history in general, there's a whole lot of King Herods and Herod the Great and Herod the Tetrarch. And well, so this guy, Herod the Tetrarch, his name is also Herod Antipas. And we'll see that also throughout your Bible in different places. He's, he's the ruler of Galilee. He was known as King Herod, although he wasn't a king. He was a tetrarch, which means four rulers. He was one of four rulers, and he was in charge of ruling over Galilee. He was um, actually, if you go back to Jesus and um, his death and crucifixion, he was involved with Pontius Pilate back then. This is the same guy who Menaean, the leader of this church, uh, grew up with, is what it says. He was brought up with him. One of the things about Herod Antipas or Herod the Tetrarch is that Herod married his brother Philip's wife. Let me say that again. Herod married his brother Philip's wife. Um, so just imagine how awkward it would be around Thanksgiving meals. <laughs> Philip, could you please pass the gravy to my wife, your ex-wife, my ex-sister-in-law. Could you, I mean, like, it's kind of messy. It's, it's, it's actually really messy. He married his brother Philip's wife, and why that's important to any of us is because John the Baptist kept telling Herod, dude, it's not okay that you married your brother's wife. And to the point, I guess John the Baptist, he's kind of a wild dude, right? So, like, he probably kept saying it, and so Herod has John the Baptist put in prison over it. Like, stop telling me that I can't marry my, my brother's wife. It's cool. It's cool. We're all okay with it, right? I doubt it, but okay. And then in Mark chapter 6, we read about Herod the Tetrarch. He throws himself a huge birthday party because that's what you do when you're rich and you're in charge. Um, and, and honestly, maybe Menaean was there. Herod's stepdaughter in the middle of this birthday bash, his brother's daughter, his niece, comes in and dances for him at his birthday party. And it must have been quite the dance because Herod was so filled with lust that he, he, he goes up to his stepdaughter slash niece and he says, whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And she must have been a real gem because she asks for the most horrific thing she says, give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And he does it. I mean, how crazy is this, right? The levels of depravity in this story are astounding. And the scripture says that Menaean, number four, Menaean, was brought up with this character, brought up with him. So this term, brought up with, um, doesn't mean that like they went to middle school together. 
I just want you to understand, they're not like Facebook friends. Like, oh yeah, I remember Manan. He was a cool dude, right? Like, that's not how this works. In fact, the Greek word brought up with, uh, it really doesn't have a good translation for us in English. And so it's a little awkward and a little weird, but it could even be translated as this, Manan, parentheses, who was breastfed with Herod the Tetrarch. Now, I don't know or want to get into the details of how that took place, but my point is this. They aren't just really good friends. They were, they were intimately raised together in the same household. So you've got this guy, Manan, who's the leader, one of the five leaders of this early church, and he is really, really awkwardly good friends with Herod the Tetrarch. The beauty of what God does is that he can take anyone's past and redeem it. Anyone. I mean, he, he doesn't just offer us forgiveness of sins. He literally uses and chooses the most forgiven people to lead his church. I mean, this is a hot mess of people. The, 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 the top four, it's like, uh, wow, what does staff meeting look like? for these guys. And the last one is Saul. Now, Saul, we know, is a trained rabbi. He's a zealous persecutor of the church. And, and now he is the, one of the leading teachers in the church in Antioch. And, and it's in this chapter where Saul is no longer called Saul. He literally, if you look in, in chapter 13, you can kind of look through the beginning of chapter 13 and the end of chapter 13. He begins as Saul. And by the end of that chapter, he's now called Paul. And not only that, it starts out with Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul, they're kind of the dynamic duo. And by the end of chapter 13, they're now called Paul and Barnabas. It switches. His new name, and now he's not the second, he's the first. Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. So, the, the staff, the pastoral staff on the first church of Antioch is a Hellenistic Jew, a, a, a black man, an African, a, a bosom buddy to King Herod, um, and, and a, a, a Jew of Jews who is a former pers persecutor of Christians, former terrorist. People of different generations, different cultures, different backgrounds, different races, different skin colors, different pedigrees, different traditions, different paths, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, all of the above. People who were raised even in their, in their childhood to hate, to have hatred for other people on that list, now they call them brothers. It is only Jesus that can do this. All of the qualifiers that our culture uses to tell us this is who you are, this is your main identity, I just want to point out to you, seem to be very small to God. He's like, yeah, I know, you, you guys don't get along historically. Your people have never, ever seen eye to eye. And I know that you're rich and you're poor and you're from here and you're from there and you, you look different, act different, have different traditions. I know your mama never did this. And you're, yeah. But you're brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, he says, neither, neither is there Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So if you're looking at yourself and you're thinking, I just don't measure up, 
I'm too far gone. I don't qualify. I've, I've pushed the boundaries too far. I just want you to understand this, that being a sinner does not disqualify you from following Jesus. Having a past does not disqualify you from following Jesus. In fact, Jesus looks at you and says, hey, potential leader here, this is, this is great. Because it's not about how awful you are or were. It's about how amazing he is. Honestly, God isn't as impressed with your past as you are. He's not. Yeah, but you don't understand. I mean, I did this and I was involved in this. I was in this and these people and I did that and this. I'm not proud of this. God's like, yeah, okay. (laughs) I'm not impressed. He takes all of that and gives us something new. The beauty of the gospel is that you cannot outsin his grace. And he takes people from all walks of life and not only forgives them, but calls them to lead. And this motley crew of people are so serious about being led by the Holy Spirit. This is what I love about them. Verse 2 says this. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And a lot of times we like to focus on the part where the Holy Spirit said, right? Like the Holy Spirit spoke and that's awesome. But look at what these leaders were doing beforehand. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Many times we want the Holy Spirit to speak to us, but we are unwilling to put in the time and the effort to lean in. To lean in to the whisper to lean in to the voice of God, that still, small voice. And they do this through worship and fasting. And we, we come together and like, yeah, we, we worship every week, but I would say fasting is one of the least known or least practiced disciplines of the Christian life. <laughs> we don't like to say no to this very often. That's just honest, right? I don't, I don't, I don't turn down lunch very often. You're going to buy me lunch? Let's go, right? I'm ready to go. Well, I, I don't turn this thing down. And so we, we seem to kind of reserve fasting for like the ultra spiritual people. Like, oh man, yeah, you know, you live out in, you know, in the middle of nowhere and you're a hermit and I don't know, you raise goats. So obviously you fast, right? I mean like, no, no, no. I just want you to see this, that like leadership in the early church and the early church saw fasting as a normal part of the Christian life. So what is fasting? It's simply refraining from food for spiritual purposes. Refraining from food is called a diet. Refraining from food for spiritual purposes is called fasting. And what essentially it is, is it's, it's saying, it's, it's more than lip service. It's saying, I'm serious. I'm serious about this, God. Leaders, leaders worship God and fast. And we see time and time again in the early church, Honestly, whenever they come to points or places of decision, you always see that nagging word around there, worship, fasting, and prayer. Worship, fasting, and prayer. Time and time again in the early church, we, we see Christians having a special sensitivity to the communication of the Holy Spirit during times of worship and fasting. So what I, I'll just leave you and then I'll move on because I know we're like already hungry and like, don't even call a fast today, pastor, right? Like, I understand that. But if you're seeking God for something right now, for direction right now, worship and fast. 
If you're like, man, I just, I don't know, I, I got this decision to make and I, I'm, just, I'm just unsure of what to do, worship and fast. Because if worship and fasting was how the early church found the mind of God, do we really think that we have discovered a better way? Because if you want what normal people have, then do what normal people do. But if you want what few people have, then you've got to be willing to do what few people do. So begin to start putting something into it if we want to get something out of it. What I've found is that God very rarely calls people who are doing nothing to do something. What he does is he calls people who are doing something to do something more. And so start putting something into it. Start serving. Start doing something. Start answering the call of God in your life. Take that first step knowing that God always calls people who are doing something to do something more. And then in verse 2, continues. It says, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. That word said, the Holy Spirit said. I talk to people all the time. I literally, I can't tell you how many times I'll, I'll be in counseling situations with people and they're like, I, I've never heard God speak to me. And some of you, you're like, yeah, I've, I've just, I've tried. I've, I, I thought maybe, but no. I, I, I've never heard the voice of God. And my answer to this and would be to, to most of you was, I bet you have, but you just didn't know it. I bet you have, but you just didn't know it. Because when we look throughout the word of God, even when I look throughout my own life and you look throughout your own life, we see that hearing God is three things. It is natural, it is learned, and it is cultivated. Hearing God is natural, I'm not sure. It's learned and it's cultivated. Let me, let me prove it to you. Hearing God is natural. John 6, 44. Jesus said, no one can come to the Father no, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Let me say that again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. So I would argue, if you have come to faith in Jesus, it's only because you're responding to the calling of God. So following Jesus always begins with listening. I, I, if you've come to faith in Christ, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, the only way you come there is through responding to the drawing of the Holy Spirit, responding to the call of God on your life. It's the only way. So I would say, like, if you're like, ah, I've just never heard God speak to me, I, I beg to differ. You only come to God through his calling as, as he calls you, as he, as, as he whispers that into your life. The second scripture is this, John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, Jesus said. It's your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Verse 8. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So here's what I would say. If you have ever been convicted of your sin, you've heard the voice of the Holy Spirit. He said that Jesus said that the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So if you've ever just been convicted of your sin, and I don't mean like browbeaten. I don't mean like your, your, your aunt came up and, at Thanksgiving dinner and was like, you know, you need to stop this and you're a sinner and you need to quit that and stop doing this and start doing this. I'm saying in your own prayer time, God convicts you of your sin not because of shame or, or, or guilting of other people, but I'm saying that it's just deposited on the inside of you, you've heard the voice of God. Now, maybe he didn't come in like a, this is me, it's me, God, listen. It didn't come like that. 
But it came like this. So if you've surrendered your life to Christ, and if you've ever been convicted of sin, you've heard the voice of God. It's natural. The second thing we know is that listening to God, hearing God is learned. John 10, 27 says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. The longer you walk with the Lord, the easier it becomes to recognize his voice. It is just true. It's learned. It becomes, it becomes just secondhand to you. When my kids were little, they could be in a sea of children at like a park, and I could pick out their cry in an instant. I could hear other kids cry and be like, it's not my kid. And be like, how do you know? I'm like, because I know my kids cry, right? Because <laughs> you could pick out your kids cry. How come? Because you know them. Not just because you know them, because you have heard that's very specifically tuned cry many times in the quiet of your own home, Right? As you're sleeping, as you wake up, as, as they fall down and get hurt, you know your child cries, so you can recognize it amidst the noise of life. It's the same thing with, with, with the voice of God in your life. You can recognize it even in the midst of the noise of life. You can be going about your business. You can be going about, yeah, you can be driving to work. You can be doing things. You can be in a conversation. All of a sudden, you just sense the voice of God in your life. It becomes more and more secondhand. It's learned and the third thing is that hearing God is cultivated. James 4.17 says, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Here, here's, here's the reality is that many times we want to hear God. We want to hear his voice. We want, to, we want him to you know, speak to us. We want to be able to have that experience. But but it never comes like, hello, it's me, God. It never comes like that. When the Holy Spirit speaks, he commands, he instructs, and he calls us to action. <laughs> so when the Holy Spirit speaks, it's important that you obey. It's not just like, God, I just want you to speak to me. I just want to know kind of what you're thinking, know your heart. It's important that we don't just hear, hear, but that we're also doers of the word of God, which is exactly what happens here in verse three in these five guys that are praying, worshiping, and fasting together. They hear the word of the Lord and they immediately do what they heard. Verse three, so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Notice that fasting and prayer was how they heard the will of God but it didn't stop there. It says that they fasted and prayed as they executed the will of God as well. They, they were fasting, worshiping and fasting, heard from God, and then they fasted and prayed and sent them off. It was a part of everything that they did. We always need to make sure that we're, that we're worshiping the Lord before we just simply work for him. That we're worshiping him before we start just doing things for him. In verse 3, it says, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And this sounds so simple and clear-cut, doesn't it? It's like, it's easy for us because God didn't tell you to do it. He told these five people to do it. So we're like, yeah, obviously, you're going to hear from God, set apart for me, Saul and Barnabas and Paul and Barnabas, whatever his name is, and, you know, send them off. Oh, it's so simple and so easy. Why, why would you not do this? But 
Think about how hard this must have been. These, these two men, Paul and Barnabas, were the two most eminent and gifted leaders in this church. They built this church. They were the ones that literally preached every single week. They were the one, the teachers, all these other people came alongside them and helped them. And they're saying, and, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit's like, hey, take these two guys and set them apart and for the work that I have called them to. And it was a complete loss for this leadership team in the church in Antioch, but it was obedience to God. And following God's will is always better than being led by our comfort. And it says, verse 4, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. <laughs> what amazes me is that there's no real plan. It's like, hey, you just sent them apart for the work that I've appointed for them. And so they just get on a boat and sail for the work for which I've called them to. What in the world does that mean? Think if you were Paul and Barnabas here. I don't know about you, but God seems notorious to, to do this type of thing to people that follow him, right? He tells Abram in, in uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, he says, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. In other words, like pack up all your stuff, all the people, all the things that, that you kind of hold on to, your past and all of your possessions, and just start going to the place I'm going to show you. Well, where are we going? I'm going to show you. But we're, how long is it going to be? I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. Oh, it doesn't work that way. But it does. And so Abram goes, even though he has no itinerary, no plan. And what, what we start to notice is that God seems to always lead us step by step, not in giant leaps. I was looking at the, um, the map of the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. Um, I think we have it up here. So you'll see they started in Antioch over there on the right, and then they go to Salamis, then to Paphos, then to Perga and Pamphylia, to this other Antioch, to Iconium, Lystra, Derby. But I mean, it's literally this, this great loop that they, they all went on. And as I was looking at it this week, I was thinking, I couldn't help but, but think of those um, connect the dot drawing pages. Do you remember those? Maybe your kids have those things. It's where you get that blank sheet of paper that just has a bunch of dots all over and a bunch of numbers. And you have to literally just kind of like find number one, and then you go step by step in order and start connecting the dots. You go like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And if you choose to go from like one to eight, you mess it up. It's done. Right, because the picture is only drawn when you go step by step by step, one dot at a time. And what we find is that this is exactly how God leads us. One step at a time. He gives you the next step, and then the next step, and then the next step, and he never gives you the whole picture. <laughs> I wish he would. I wish he would just be like, and this is kind of the whole thing, and this is kind of where we're going, and this is the itinerary, but, but he's always telling me to simply move to the next dot, to the next dot, to the next dot, to the next step, asking me, will you walk in obedience to this? Well, I was kind of waiting for you to show me what all the rest of it was going to look like. What's the picture going to look like at the end? I just need you to walk in obedience to this next step. Can you do that for me? 
continually he lays it out before us like that. And I, I often wonder why he does this, but I, but I think that if he were to show us the whole picture before we took the first step, we'd be overwhelmed. We might actually not even attempt to even do any of this. If we just were like, you know what, I just, I'd like to just kind of see what uh, dot seven has in hold in store for it. You'd probably freak out and say, mm, kind of busy. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm good at one. I don't really want to go even to two, let alone seven. Um, just kind of, I'm good right here. Because what we find is that God always speaks to us in sentences, not paragraphs. It always seems to speak to us in sentences, not paragraphs. Even here, you see, the Holy Spirit says, one sentence, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. That's it. Think about that. What if the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which, which I have called them. And by the way, it's not going to be unicorns and rainbows for you two. Um, there's going to be a whole lot of stuff that you're going to have to go through. Um, you're going to encounter false prophets and people who will threaten your life and people who will persecute you and kick you out of town and gossip about you. And you're going to have to preach the gospel to people who want to kill you. Oh, and dot number seven, you better get ready for dot number seven because in dot number seven, they're going to stone you and then drag your lifeless body outside of the city thinking that you're dead. And then you're going to come to and you're going to have to go back to dot number seven before you can go to dot number eight. So you in? You stinking kidding me? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing this. Connect the dot page. You, you need to set apart somebody else. Manan, you go, you set apart, you go, set him apart, right? Because sometimes we're like, yeah, I got set apart. You hear me? Yeah, they mentioned my name. Do you hear the Holy Spirit? Mention my name. That's me, so, right here, Barnabas. <laughs> um, I guarantee you, if they knew what was in store for them, they probably would have been thinking, whoa, I don't, I don't know if I want to be set apart. Um, I think I'd rather somebody else be set apart than me. Because sometimes when God calls you, <laughs> he puts before you things that are harder than what you think you can handle. I thank God that he, that he leads us step by step, dot by dot, not in giant leaps. I thank God that he literally calls us to obey and then understand, not understand, and then obey. He calls us to just walk in obedience, step by step. Why don't you stand with me? The, the trouble with this and why it's so quiet in here today is because this rubs against every one of our American sensibilities. This is crazy. I mean, it's fine to read about it, but are you telling me not only should I give up lunch for spiritual purposes, <laughs> but like, I might be called to do something that like, I don't want to do? I, I mean, surely God, God came to make me happy. I, I, don't, I don't understand why he would ever call me to do something that would be outside of my comfort zone. And what we find is exactly what he calls us to. I mean, who gets on a boat and doesn't have an itinerary? 
Who leaves a career to follow a calling? I mean, we want to know where, when, how long is it going to be? I mean, what's the hourly itinerary? And what's the meal plan? And what exactly is my salary and benefit package going to be like? Imagine if they started asking these questions. (laughs) And we live our lives thinking that we can somehow control the outcome, that we somehow hold the cards here. Can I just remind you, church, that you're here today. You're here today because Christians who came before you decided to fast and pray, and when God spoke, they acted. They didn't sit on their hands and hope somebody else does it. They sacrificed. You're here today because the church spread outside of its comfort zone. And they left friends and family and sometimes laid hands on friends and family to send them off by the Holy Spirit for the work to which they had prepared them for. And I want to encourage you and leave you with something this morning. if um, If you need to hear from God, fast and pray. Worship the Lord. Stop waiting for God to lay out his entire plan before you act. He calls us to obey and then understand. Honestly, his plan has been and is still very, very simple. It's not complicated. It may be hard, but it's not complicated. And it's been that way ever since the beginning where he called his first disciples and said, come, follow me. Step by step, dot to dot to dot to dot. And following Jesus is usually step by step, not giant leaps. And for maybe for some of you, it's time to begin to connect the dots. Maybe today is your day that you're going to say, you know what, like, it's time for me to surrender my life to him. I've been, I've been... (laughs) I've been messing around, I've been listening long enough, and it's time to trust and obey. And maybe that's your next step to connect the dots. Because here's what I know. Nobody can take your next step for you. I can't. Even maybe your spouse can't. Your friends can't. Whatever your next step is, take it. And if you're scared, do it scared. (laughs) But walk in obedience to what it is that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would take something from this early church in Antioch, this this crazy, audacious, sell-the-farm type of faith, believing you for something big, not meaning that life is going to be easier, but knowing that our legacy is going to be greater. Lord, we thank you that you call us to something outside of ourselves, outside of our comfort zone, outside of all the trappings and American sensibilities that we like to conflate with Christianity and realize that we are people called to come follow you. Step by step by step by step, every step of the way. And so, Lord, I pray that it that we would just get this down on the inside of us, that you've called us for something more. And as we sing today, as we, as we worship today, 
whatever you, whatever you feel led to do. Maybe you want to come, come down here on the front. Maybe you want to just set yourself apart. Whatever that looks like. Maybe you just want to consecrate yourself before the Lord and say, you know what? Today's the day where I'm going to set myself apart. I'm done messing around. And I know that I know that I know that God has been leading me and pushing me in this direction. God, I want to respond to you. And yet I don't. So give me courage. Help my unbelief. So Lord, we lift your name up in this place. Jesus, have your way in us. God, I pray that we would be people that would be about our Father's business, that you call people who are doing something to do something more. And so as we walk in step with you, God, I pray that you would show us our next step ahead, our next step ahead, and then we walk in response and obedience to you. We thank you. We worship you. Let's worship him together, church.